0: What is the relationship between the Hebrew Bible and ancient Near Eastern myths? Combining theories of metaphor and narrative, Paul Cho argues that the Hebrew Bible is more deeply mythological than previously recognized. Tune in as we talk with Paul Cho about the sea myth in the Hebrew Bible, the subject addressed in his recent book, Myth, History, and Metaphor in the Hebrew Bible. That's by Cambridge University Press 2019. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Paul Cho is assistant professor of Hebrew Bible at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. His articles have been published in Catholic Biblical Quarterly and in the Journal of Biblical Literature. Paul, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, Paul, there are different conceptions of myth. You refer to myth as story and metaphor. Would you explain that for us?
1: Yeah, so I, so the definite, defining myth is a tricky matter and, uh, very few scholars, uh, will agree on a definition. Uh, so I just propose a working definition, uh, it goes something like this. I say that myth is a story about weighty matters involving deities, human beings, and other personalities that, in the understanding of its adherents, reveal something true about the real world, uh, real order of the world. And, uh, I emphasize that myth is a story, and that I also pick up, uh, I, I propose that we should look at myth as a metaphor to get at the uh, the notion of the fact that some people think of it as revealing uh, something true about the world. Uh, so most students of myth uh, will agree that myth is a story, but very few uh, theories of myth in fact, take that into uh, great consideration or, uh, or or delve into that very much. But in my book, I try to emphasize that myth is a story. And what this does for us is that we are able to dissect myth into its component parts and use those component parts as a way of analyzing uh, myth and the effect that myth has on the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so the component parts that I look at uh, taking Than from Aristotle, uh, is uh, is verbal expression, the language that the myth uh, will use, the characters that populate the myth, uh, the thought or the themes that the myth deals with, and finally, and for my purposes, the most importantly, the plot or or the narrative structure of myth as uh, story. So that's the myth as story part, and I also uh, propose that we should look at myth as metaphor. Because I think uh, that gets at the ways in which myth is, can be understood to reveal something true about the real order uh, of the world. And I divide, um, I divide, uh, so the, the first thing is, that I argue is that all the components of a story, namely the language, the characters, the themes, as well as the plot, the, the narrative structure of a story, can be used as a metaphor of some sort. So that gives us a good way of, of looking at the ways in which myth influences the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the second part that I want to emphasize is the is that when we t- we're talking about metaphor, and so myth as a metaphor, uh, we're really talking about two things, one, the metaphorical participants um, uh, uh, that is the two things or more things that can be compared to one another, A or B, and then the metaphorical copula, the, the, the A is part, the, the A is B, the, the is part. And I said that A, the metaphorical participants can be any of those things that I've rediscussed, verbal expression, characters, themes, plot. And what is important to realize uh, about the metaphorical copula is that, what I argue is that it actually creates something new. Uh, something uh, It creates a new meaning and going beyond that uh, uh, creates a new being in the world. Uh, I trace the, the drama that is contained in the, uh, in the metaphorical copula in this way. When you say A is B, you're creating a metaphor. But what Uh, we should realize is that when we say A is B, let's say uh, men are pigs, we don't literally mean men are pigs. So, the foundation of a metaphor is, to a certain extent, built upon uh, a lie, a categorical mistake. That is to say, men are not pigs, but we say uh, men uh, are pigs. So, uh but then so we might think that well the, does a metaphor mean that men are like pigs, or is it a s is it, is it a simile? But then I think when we uh when we use a metaphor, we mean something stronger uh than a simile. Men are like pigs, but rather than men are pigs. And when we think about that uh the, the emphasis on the is, we realize that by using a metaphor, by creating a metaphor, especially novel metaphors, we are creating new meaning for uh, one or one or the other parts of the uh, metaphor. Uh, so you're creating a new meaning. But as soon as you take out take the metaphor outside of the arena of linguistics, but into the world, uh, we actually create something uh, what we call a new being. And more expansively, uh, what I argue in the book is that if you think about the plot of an entire story being used as a as a metaphor, we are able to in fact create a new world. So, so in emphasizing that the myth is a story uh, and as a metaphor, I'm trying to get at a new way of analyzing
0: myth and its influence in the Hebrew Bible. In your third chapter, you rehearse sea myths of the ancient Near East. One of these is the Baal cycle from Ugarit. Tell us about that sea myth. Yeah,
1: uh, the Baal cycle uh, is, a, we, I think, uh, readers of the Hebrew Bible will be familiar with the character of Baal. Uh, Baal is usually uh, appears in the pages of the Hebrew Bible as an idol or uh, the false god that the Israelites are reprimanded for worshiping. But uh, well, we actually have an entire um, cycle of myths, cycle of stories about this deity, uh, and it comes from, as you mentioned, from Ugarit, uh, and Ugarit is a um, is a port city uh, in modern day Syria, and it seems to have been destroyed by destroyed in the 13th century BCE, and we discovered uh, its literary troves back in 1929, and since then. Uh, Scholars have been studying this myth and have been discovering that it actually gives us a, a lot of insight into the background uh, of the ancient Near Eastern uh, world, <coughs> and including the Hebrew Bible. Uh, this myth about Baal uh, is about a conflict between Baal, who is the protagonist deity here, uh, and Yam, the god of the sea, who is the... Uh, the, the the bad guy in this story. So Baal, in the beginning of the story, loses his kingship to Yom. And then Baal engages in a series of conflicts with Yom to regain that kingship. Um, And it's important to remember that Baal, in this cycle, uh, is not a bad uh, deity, but rather uh, the the good deity, the the deity who stands in for order and life and fertility. Uh, Baal is a storm god. And so as the one who is responsible for sending rain uh, and therefore uh, the ability, uh, fertility into the land, uh, Baal is a god of life to a certain extent. And Yom, on the other hand, uh, symbolizes disorder and chaos uh, and kind of the anti-life forces. And so in this myth, Baal defeats Yom in a battle. And as a consequence, Baal wins back his kingship. but the, these are not only, uh, kinship is not the only thing that is a result of Baal's uh, victory over Yam. Uh, he also is able to create, uh, build a temple, which to a certain extent concretizes his kingship. But his temple is also related to his role as creator. Uh, this second claim that Baal is creator is contested among scholars, but I think it becomes fairly clear uh, that Baal's victory over Yam uh, has something to do with creation in the fact that when Baal uh, engages in, a, in, a, in another battle with the deity Moat, the god of death, and dies, uh, all the earth begins to die out. The plant life withers away, and therefore uh, uh, life itself seems to die. And it is only when Baal comes back to life uh, that he, he is able to send rain probably from his temple, uh, that life returns, uh, to, to the, to creation. Uh, so Baal may not be, uh, um, responsible for creating the cosmos per se, but, uh, Baal is responsible as creator, uh, as for, for the continuation of life on earth. So Baal defeats Yom, uh, the god of the sea, and as a consequence, uh, he regains his kingship, He builds a temple, and he sustains life in creation. Uh, So that's uh, the basic uh, storyline of the Baal cycle. And and I think uh, that that myth has been quite influential and enlightening for our understanding of the Hebrew Bible as well.
0: In the rest of your book, you relate the sea myth to the Hebrew Bible's accounts of creation, the exodus, the exile, and the eschaton. So how does the sea myth function in relation to the creation account?
1: Yeah, so in the book, I look at the relationship between uh, sea myths on the one hand and creation accounts in the Hebrew Bible uh, in two locations. Uh, First, I look at uh, the various ways in which uh, we can see the sea myth influencing uh, accounts of creation in the book of Psalms. And I also deal with uh, uh, the relationship between the sea myths and uh, Genesis chapter 1 uh, when we have the priestly account of creation. And I think I can briefly kind of uh, give a summary of the ways in which I see the sea myth influencing the creation account in Genesis 1. Uh, so I first looked at the language that carries over from uh, ancient Near Eastern sea myths uh, into the creation account in Genesis 1. Uh, the first instance of this uh, is quite famous, uh, is, is the appearance of the deep, uh, or to home in Genesis chapter one, uh, verse two. It says that darkness is hover, uh, darkness is over, uh, the, the deep or to home. And though there is some debate about this, I think most scholars will agree that to home is a reflex or uh, of the, uh, of the, uh, of the sea deity in the Babylonian version of the sea myth called the Enuma Elish. Uh, there, instead of having yam, we have uh, the deity named Tiamat, uh, which probably uh, uh, refers to the salty uh, ocean, uh, as the antagonist. And it is through the defeat of Tiamat that Marduk, the Babylonian deity, is able to create uh, both the cosmos and to a certain extent human beings. And what we have in Genesis 1-2 uh, is perhaps a reflection, uh, a depersonalized reflection of this Tiamat deity, deity as to home. Uh, and the second uh, kind of language we, we can see across, coming from the sea myth in Genesis 1 is the firmament in Genesis chapter 1 verse 6. Uh, when God uh, on the second day uh, build, uh, creates a firmament, firmament to, to divide the waters above and the waters below. And a similar thing actually happens in the Enuma Elish, where Marduk, after killing, uh, Tiamat, takes the carcass, divides it in half, and then, uh, uh, kind of puts one half up in the heavens to, uh, uh, block out the waters above, uh, and that's the firmament, and the, and the other half, kind of creates the uh, the earth the land to keep out uh, the waters below. Uh so we have probably the same theme being played out in Genesis 1 there. And then perhaps the clearest uh reference to the sea myth uh, in terms of verbal expression comes in Genesis 1 uh verse 21 where God is in fact uh seen creating uh what are uh what are uh, what's translated what should be translated as sea dragons, uh, taninim in the Hebrew. And this is a direct reflex of the fact that, uh, sometimes the sea deities are, uh, are equated or identified with, uh, the sea monsters, the tanin, the, the, the sea dragons. And here we have God not only, uh, creating these, uh, kind of cosmic forces of chaos, but rather in fact blessing uh, these dragons, these sea dragons. So we have uh, verbal, kind of the language being borrowed from the sea myths, but of course uh, the pre-sea writers are doing something very different with each uh, theme, each motif. Uh, <clears throat> so we have we have clear kind of connections uh, between Genesis 1 uh, and these uh, ancient Near Eastern sea myths. Uh, and this also comes out in the fact that the themes uh, that are dealt with in Genesis 1, reflect the themes that we see in uh, the sea myths. We saw that the consequence of God's victory over uh, the, the, the God of the sea is creation, temple, and kingship, and that's precisely what we find in Genesis 1 as well. Uh, obviously, we have in Genesis 1 an account of creation, so creation is obviously an important uh, aspect of Genesis one and we also see the temple. Uh, and what we see is that the entire creation, uh, especially the Earth, is presented uh, in Genesis one as God's temple. It is so instead of building a separate uh structure uh in which God resides, rather the entire cosmos, the entire creation is presented as God's temple. Uh, this has a large kind of theological implication. If the entire cosmos, uh, all, all of creation, is God's temple, uh, then to, it it logically precludes the possibility that other temples for other gods uh, can be built. Uh, so there is a a clear, uh, but if if subtle, uh, claim for the uh, the kingship and and so the godship of the God of Israel alone, uh, and. And this theme of creation and temple is connected to God's kingship. Uh, we know that from the ancient Near Eastern world, as all, including the Hebrew Bible, that uh, when God enters the temple, uh, God is, to a certain extent, being enthroned as king, and entering not rest per se, but uh, but entering into the beginning of uh, of God's God's uh, reign as king. Uh, so what we have in Genesis 1 are the verbal expressions that make the connection between Genesis 1 and, uh, and the sea very clear, and then also the themes that, to a certain extent, concretize uh, that. What we don't find is a direct reflection of the plot or the narrative structure of ancient sea myths in Genesis 1. Uh, we have, of course, creation, temple, and kingship, but what is missing in Genesis 1 is the theme of conflict, uh, so uh, God does not create uh, or become king as a result of a victory or in battle, but rather simply is creator and simply is king. Uh, and so we don't have the entire story being uh, of uh, of ancient near uh, ancient near stem myth represented or replicated in Genesis one. Because precisely because we don't have the theme of conflict, but what I would say is that um that what Genesis has done is to remove the theme of conflict to the arena uh that is outside of the text, so that what in other sea myths uh, are is a conflict uh that is uh that happens within the story the uh, conflict in Genesis one becomes extra textual it happens. Uh, first of all, uh, in the theological discourse that the priestly writers who probably author Genesis 1 are having with the theological claims of a other Semites, such as the Babylonian Anuma Elish, uh, and, uh, which says that, well, if Marduk created the heavens and the earth, uh, through conflict, well, the God of Israel, uh, creates without conflict because there is no possibility for any force, any power that can in fact uh, um, battle against the God of Israel. And I think the second extra extra textual uh, conflict happens in the mind of the readers and the hearers of this story. When when the ancient audience would have heard Genesis 1 being uh, read or uh, read out loud. They would have been shocked uh, by the fact that creation is happening without a conflict. And they would have understood that this theological program of the priestly writers is at odds with, and to a certain extent, is in, is in conflict with the theological claims of both the, the Canaanite neighbors as well as the Babylonian uh, captors of the Israelites. So that's how I see the uh, sea myth, uh being played out and transformed in Genesis 1.
0: In your chapter on the sea myth and the eschaton, you discuss two biblical texts, Isaiah 24 through 27 and Daniel 7. Would you give our listeners an idea of how the sea myth functions in one of these passages?
1: Sure. Um, so so if we see in Genesis 1, uh, the sea the myth being transformed in the biblical account of creation, uh, we have in in Isaiah 24 to 27, and also in Daniel 7 and following, uh, the transformation of the smith as as an account of what will happen in the eschaton. That is to say, in the to a certain extent, in the end of history. So eschaton and eschatology has to do with uh, the end things. Uh, and both Isaiah 24 to 27 and Daniel 7 uh, are conceptualized as happening at the logical end of historical time uh, so we're entering into uh, the eschatological era and and in both passages uh, we have something like uh, not the exact replication but something like the the sea myth uh, occurring I think we can uh, look at Isaiah 24 27 uh, Isaiah 24 to 27 is used, has been called the Isaiah apocalypse uh, but uh Many scholars, I think, I think most scholars don't think that the generic ascription of apocalypse to these chapters uh, is correct. But I think they do deal with what we might call the eschatological era. And we have here, again, uh, the sea myth being transformed uh, as a metaphor for describing uh, events that the writers believe will happen in the end of time. Uh, Really, a striking example of this comes in uh, chapter 27, uh, verse 1, uh, in which which reads, uh, "On that day, the Lord will punish with his cruel and great and strong sword Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will kill the dragon that is in the sea." Uh, what is remarkable here is that this passage seems to be almost an exact quotation from what we find in the. Baal Cycle. Uh, in Baal Cycle Tablet 5, uh, we have this saying, when you, referring to Baal, uh, when you struck down Litan. Litan is the, uh, the Ugaritic version of Leviathan. And Litan is described in the exact same words that we find in Isaiah 27. It says, when you struck down Litan, the fleeing serpent annihilated the twisty serpent, the potentate with seven heads. Uh, so what we have in 27-1, uh, is, uh, is not only a verbal uh, repetition, uh, verbatim repetition of what we find in the Baal cycle, uh, but also the very characters that we find there. Uh, not Baal, but the Lord, uh, is the protagonist who will fight, uh, the dragon, uh, uh, called Leviathan in the Bible and Latan, uh, in the, in the Baal cycle. So we have the theme of conflict. And of course, the presumed victory of uh, of God over the forces of chaos represented by this uh, dragon. And then what we find in the rest of uh, Isaiah 24 to 27 are the consequences of God's victory. Uh, we expect to see creation, kingship, and temple. And those three are precisely what we find as the the consequence of God's victory or the God's future victory over uh, Leviathan. Uh, first, we see the theme of creation um, <clears throat> in these chapters. Uh, in Isaiah 24, the first chapter of what is called the Isaiah Apocalypse, um, uh, is an imagining uh, as a depiction of the earth, all of earth to a certain extent, as a vegetative world, perhaps even as a garden or a uh, or a uh, olive grove. And what's happening to earth as a result of some, some, uh, perhaps some, uh, sins that the people have committed, uh, uh, is that the earth as a, as a garden is being dried up and being withered away. It's being devoured. Uh, so we have the garden, the earth as a garden, uh, kind of dying out. But, but in Isaiah 27 verses 2 to 6, the passage immediately following, a God's battle against Leviathan is a poem, uh, uh, in which, uh, God is, God imagines a pleasant garden, a pleasant vineyard. So we see God being, being imagined to a certain ex- extent as a gardener, uh, and making this garden come back to life. Uh, and, the kind of the worldwide implication becomes clear at the, uh, end of that poem in verse six when it says, in, the, in days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will sprout and blossom, then the face of the world will be filled with uh, with fruit. So what is, what is happening is God defeats the dragon, the forces of chaos and death, and then Israel uh, is the first to come back to life, and from there, life and fertility spreads to, throughout all creation. So we have the renewal of creation as a re- direct result of this kind of cosmic victory of God over uh, over Leviathan. Also in play is the kingship of God. Uh, this is uh, to a certain extent very clear in chapter twenty four, verse twenty three, in which it simply says, "The Lord of hosts will reign." Or perhaps better, uh, "The Lord of hosts will be king on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem." So the kingship of God is uh, uh, is in question and we see God uh God to certain exercising God's kingship in verse in chapter 24 and 25 uh in which we see God judging uh, the hosts of heaven and also the kings of the earth uh as well as holding a holding an eschatological feast of sorts uh in which God in fact i would say uh devours death and of course this is this may be this probably is a reflex of the Baal cycle in which God battles, uh, where Baal battles, uh, the, the God of death, uh, called Moat. And so we have creation, kinship, and also the temple. And the temple, uh, the temple is implied in the image of Zion and Jerusalem and also of the image of the garden coming back because those are all related, uh, motifs. But it becomes very clear in, at, towards the end of, uh, chapter 27 uh which reads and on that day a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem uh so what we have here obviously is uh people uh, who have been scattered uh abroad coming back to the temple in Jerusalem uh, to worship God uh once again uh so we have i think in 20 20- isaiah twenty four to twenty seven the language, the characters, the themes, as well as uh, the 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 plot of sea myths being uh, replicated uh, in a very interesting way. as something that so in 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 ancient years and sea myths, these things occur in the past, in the prological uh, era. Uh, but here that what has hap- what happened in the past, what happened in the kind of the founding events of the world. It's being projected into the eschaton, into the end times, as something that will happen, uh, perhaps once again, uh, uh, as a reinstatement of God's uh, creative kingship over the world.
0: Now, Paul, tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got interested in this topic.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think uh, I think my answer to that will, will be twofold. Uh, first, uh, anybody. Anyone who enters into the critical study of the Hebrew Bible will have encountered uh, these sea myths uh, probably from the, uh, probably in the very first class that they, uh, that they hear uh, on, uh, on the Hebrew Bible. Uh, as we, as we discussed, uh, the sea myth plays an important part in the writing and the conceptualization of creation in Genesis 1. Uh, so it's very likely that, uh, that students will hear about the sea myth, uh, the first day that they encountered the, Hebrew, the critical study of the Hebrew Bible, and that was certainly the case for me. And I think I began to uh, be fascinated by this aspect uh, of the of the Hebrew Bible and the traditions that informed its writing and its conceptualization. Uh, so that's that's one uh, one. But more specifically, I uh, kind of became more interested in writing and researching this topic uh, when I was taking a a semester, a seminar on Exodus uh chapter 13 to 15 the sea event uh, uh with uh professor John Levinson uh, and it's there in in that class that I came to realize the, the complex sophisticated and very interesting ways in which the sea myths of the ancient uh, near east uh, uh informs and in fact really uh kind of uh, uh and, and makes possible uh the, the kind of writing that we find in Exodus uh 13 14 and 15 uh so th- that's what i decided that to write write about this topic and then from there it kind of blossomed to the other areas uh the other avenue uh by which i came to uh write about this topic is my kind of ongoing interest in uh in in metaphor theory as a st- um as a student of literature i uh, I was a comparative literature major as an undergraduate, and so I've been interested in literary theory for quite some time. Um, but then I, I got, uh, I got very much, very interested in, uh, metaphor theory, uh, when I, when I, uh, began, uh, my MDiv degree. And, uh, when I was at Yale, I was introduced to, uh, kind of this whole, whole field of metaphor theory by Professor Benjamin Harshav, who Passed, passed away a few years ago, um, and he has been very influential in my thinking about this topic, uh, as well as uh, Christopher Johnson, uh, Professor Christopher Johnson at Harvard, who, uh, with whom I took a course on, on metaphor and metaphor theory. Uh, and so I think there's there, there are two areas, two uh, avenues by which I came to be really interested in this. The whole uh, the notion of how ancient Near Eastern myths uh, what role they played in in the conceptualization and writing of the Hebrew Bible, as well as kind of this methodological and hermeneutical question of metaphor. It's
0: been great hearing about your recent book, Paul. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.